You're listening to the Transformative Podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. Welcome to today's Transformative Podcast. I'm really happy to introduce and welcome our guest today. And our guest today is Dr. Judith Kollenberger, who is a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute for Social Policy of the Vienna University of Economics and Business, or as we call it in Vienna, simply the VU. <laughs> Ms. Kollenberger is working on forced migration and integration. She was a contributor to one of the first European surveys on the human capital of refugees in the fall of 2015. The survey, which was named Displaced Persons in Austria Survey, was awarded the Kurt Rothschild Prize. Dr. Kollenberger teaches in a master's program at the VU and also the bachelor's program at the University of Applied Sciences for Management and Communication. She's a regular contributor to the Austrian weekly newspaper Falter and has recently published two successful books. One of those is an essay collection named We or Wir in German, which was published in February 2021, and most recently also another book called The Refugee Paradox, which deals with the many legal, bureaucratic and ethical conflicts that people migrating to Europe have to deal with. So Judith, a warm welcome to our podcast. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Today we're not talking about your books, sadly, but about a survey you recently completed, which as much as I know was conducted between April and June this year, 2022, and was done simultaneously in Krakow, in Poland, and in Austria, in Vienna. I have already been to two of your talks based on the survey, and I was very impressed, even the second time, to hear what you have done. And I just wanted to take a moment to thank you and to congratulate you on this wonderful survey. It was a rapid response survey in a rather urgent situation. I think it is a tremendous work that you have done. So congratulations on that. Well, thank you so much, Irena, really for the kind words. It, it means a lot to also get this feedback from colleagues and I would say also from the general public. Because as you said correctly, it's never easy to conduct a survey among displaced people um, or refugees in a high stakes environment. And this means a lot of all nighters for the whole research team, a lot of loose ends and a lot of compromises that have to be made also when we are in the field and doing the survey. And so to see that at the end it pays off because what we really want to do is to gather evidence to support integration, return policies and to simply know more about arriving populations, to see that this really paid off is, I think, the best reward you can have. So thanks again. It means a lot, especially coming from you and the reset. You're very welcome. Now to the results of the survey. Let me ask a very broad first question. What kind of people came to Austria from Ukraine in this current wave of migration? How many came and what kind of a group is it? So currently, and as we speak, we have end of October 2020, we have about 80,000 registered Ukrainians in Austria. And our survey was able to collect data on about a thousand of them. So we did the survey in the main registration center in Vienna, the Austrian International Center. This is where previously we got our vaccines from and then 
it changed in March this year and turned into a arrival center for Ukrainian refugees. What we found really is that Ukrainians coming to Austria in the spring this year are a highly self-selected group. So they tend to have rather high educational attainment levels, many of them with an academic education, bachelor, master's or even doctoral degrees. We see that it's typically an urban population, so a high percentage of them comes from the area around Kiev and was living in an urban environment. And we also see that the socioeconomic background is rather high compared with the general population in Kiev. So we have most respondents who say that they are either upper middle class or even upper class in a self-assessed way. And this already contributes to this picture that we receive that not only in regular migration, but also in forced migration, we see a certain degree of so-called self-selection of refugees. And this particularly applies to those refugees who made their way to Western Europe. As you correctly said, we did a similar survey with our partners in Krakow. In Poland, which is of course a neighboring country to Ukraine, and while we also see a certain degree of self-selection there, so people with higher educational attainment than the general population in Ukraine, we also have to say that compared with the Austrian sample, this degree of self-selection in the Polish sample is lower. And this for us leads to the main conclusion really that we're drawing from our survey, namely the further Ukrainian refugees move to the West, uh, the more self-selected they are. The higher the educational attainment, the higher the socioeconomic background, and interestingly, the lower their return intentions. Uh, so there seems to be a direct connection also to their concrete, but also their abstract return plans once the war has stopped. Thank you for this first overview. Um, you're using a term that I think might not be self-explanatory to some of our listeners, especially maybe to students that are listening to us, a self-selection. I would be really thankful if you could tell us what you mean exactly when you're using this term. And also there's another term that always comes up in your talks, in your books, and that's human capital. What exactly is meant when human capital is named? Let me start with the second one, human capital. Human capital refers to um, qualifications, skills, but also formal educational attainment of people, in this case, of arriving refugee populations. So it's really uh, the sum of all the competences and skills that are also important, not only, but also important for labor market integration efforts. And that in my view also introduce a new angle or a new dimension when we talk about refugee populations. So it's not only that we want to look at vulnerabilities, about support needs and so on, but we also look at resources. So it's not a deficit-oriented view, but it really looks at resources that people bring to the host country. And there are a lot of resources, as we can see, in particular because, as I said, Ukrainian refugees have rather high educational attainment. And this ideally, I would say, is also good news for the host country. However, of course, on the other side of the medal, this might lead to a brain train from Ukraine. So we also have to be aware of the country of origins perspective in this regard, what it means if people with particularly high human capital emigrate, whether in a forced or in a regular context, where this leaves the country of origin. So this is human capital and then self-selection simply refers to the process of 
who exactly from the general population in a country decides to emigrate, to leave the country. And there are certain processes at stake. There is no sort of outside actor that does that selection, which is why it's called self-selection. So migrants and refugees self-select themselves, we could say, into the emigrant population. But there are certain dynamics at stake. For instance, there are certain socioeconomics and sociodemographic factors that contribute to the self-selection. And in this case, when it comes to Ukrainian displacement, we can see that some of the factors are gender, so clearly a highly female kind of immigration wave that we are seeing. But it's also importantly economic factors. People with more resources were more likely to be among the first wave or the first cohort of refugees. And education is also another factor in this self-selection. So people with high educational attainment tended to emigrate first and also tended to flee over wider distances into Western European countries. So you already mentioned a rather high socioeconomic status of Ukrainian refugees. Could you explain to me how do you estimate what kind of socioeconomic status a person who migrated to Austria may have? So this is really a combination of self-assessment that we ask people to do in our survey when they participated and looking at hard empirical data that we have. So for instance, what we see is that the refugees in our survey, the refugees that came to Austria, tend to come from those regions in Ukraine with the highest GDP per capita. So this is already one indicator which shows us that from those regions where most affluent, we could say, Ukrainians live, we have have a higher share of respondents in our survey. This is one indicator. But then we also ask people who participated in our survey to directly self-assess their socioeconomic status. Where would they place themselves? Would they consider themselves working class, middle class, upper or lower middle class, or even upper class? And here, very clear image emerged, namely that most people would say they are middle class, in particular upper middle class, or even upper class, which is a very low percentage of the general population, actually. And so these are clear indicators that we are seeing. Plus, since we have a highly urban population, we also know that in Kiev, GDP per capita is much, much higher than in most rural areas. So these are some of these indicators. And as I always say, doing a survey like this is very much like finding different puzzle pieces. And then at the end, you have to put them all together to get a wholesale, a comprehensive image of who the average Ukrainian refugee is, which is important, I would say, because we need that kind of information to have target-oriented integration offers, but also return offers. So we need to know who people are and what their needs are and resources are in order to offer the best support services that can be. And clearly the socio-demographic and socio-economic composition of this particular refugee population is different from the refugee population that came in 2015. So we can't just take all the support measures that we introduced back then and apply them to the Ukrainians. This would be a very bad fit, I think. So we at Reset, when the war in Ukraine started and the Ukrainians started migrating en masse to Austria, tried to respond to the situation by offering seven refugee scholarships to displaced scholars. And now we're hosting seven Ukrainian women who all have a PhD, which I am sure is not the typical case. So not every Ukrainian or the average Ukrainian will have a PhD. 
But what kind of education level are we looking at when we're looking at the broad group of Ukrainian refugees in Austria? Well, we can indeed see that academic qualifications are rather widespread, in particular among the group that made it to Austria. It was interesting to see also because we asked people about the reason why they chose Austria as a host country, right? And they could have also stayed in Poland or Hungary or gone to Germany. And interestingly enough, and this is not very typical in a forced migration context, a rather high percentage said that they have friends or acquaintances in Austria, not so much family, but really sort of wider social networks. And among these friends and acquaintances, very often they were also colleagues from back when people studied in Austria or had like a guest semester here or did some research or know some universities here and also want their children to have an Austrian education. So this educational aspect was very important also for the choice of host country. And again, this is another indicator that points to this high self-selection really, because we're not used to that kind of very clear and deliberate choice when we look at refugees who came in 2000. 2015, where it was mostly by coincidence why people stayed in Austria or emigrated further. And so we do see many people with a bachelor's and master's degree. As you said correctly, people with a PhD, this share is much lower, but still there are quite a lot of also people who worked in academic professions who were researchers. Uh, and so I think this is of particular importance that we also offer highly educated refugees options for fitting and very future-oriented labor market integration. Because the problem that we are very often facing with highly educated refugees who do not yet speak the language of the host country is that they often have to make this rather hard choice between either fast labor market integration or sustainable labor market integration. Sustainable labor market integration would mean that, first of all, they need to have their qualifications obtained abroad recognized in Austria, the so-called nostrification. And this is a very long and cumbersome process that requires very high levels of German, which for us working in a university context is rather absurd because our working language is English, right? But still, Austrian bureaucracy requires you to have B2 or C1 um, German skills, which takes a long time, right? And so for many refugees, also from previous migration waves to Austria, we know that this is not doable because it's also a financial question, right? So who will support me and my family while I am learning German and while I'm having my degrees recognized? And I think we should not repeat some of these mistakes from the past, especially because now we see this will be a problem that will be very widespread among Ukrainians who arrive now. So I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit more about why people choose Austria as their goal country on their flight. You already mentioned that many of the Ukrainian refugees have some sort of connections here. So friends, maybe family, colleagues. Also, there's that problematic of, of people needing some sort of financial support to survive their time abroad while they're on a flight. And Austria is certainly not one of the countries that offer the best support, especially money-wise. And there are other countries that Ukrainians could go to, could have gone to, where they can receive, simply put, more money per month, social support. So why else do people choose Austria in that situation? I think this is most interesting when we compare the reasons for why people chose Austria with the reasons why they chose Poland. Yeah, So this is the 
advantage really of our survey that we have two countries to compare, one neighboring country and one Western European country. That's interesting. And so, as I already said, for Austria, the main reason was what we call social capital, so social networks, social contacts, either family, very often friends or acquaintances, former colleagues, people you got in touch with. And there was a high familiarity with Austria among those who chose it as their host country. Frequently people said, you know, I stayed here as a tourist at some point. I know this country because I did part of my education here, or I know the country because I traveled through it at some point. I know it to have a very high quality of life, or I know German, and, and this is of course very good for the Austrian soul reading this, among all the three German speaking countries, Austria is by far the best. So this was also what someone said. <laughs> we're very happy to read that. So these were very interesting reasons to give. and Compared to Poland, especially, there was one reason and one reason only why people said they stayed in Poland or chose Poland as the host country because of the proximity to Ukraine, because it was a neighboring country and because it allowed them to go back as quickly as possible. What we're seeing now is also this kind of commuting back and forth, going back for a certain period of time to your country of origin, to your place of origin, but then perhaps also again going back to Poland. So circular migration, but in a refugee context, which is also very new or unlikely to happen. This is not possible that easily with Austria because distances are, of course, much bigger. It also explains why respondents in the Polish sample had much higher return intentions and were much more ready to say, you know, I might even return if the war continues. Um, so for me, the war ending is not that important, but I will go back in any case. This return option was very important for those who stayed in Poland, whereas for those who made the way to Austria or even, as we can assume, to other Western European countries, returning was not the immediate intention. So many people said that for the time being, we will stay in Austria and we would also make sure that our children will go to school here because here they can receive quality education. And so this is, I think, a very clear difference that we can see, which also means, I think, that the kind of support and integration measures that Poland offers to its Ukrainian refugees must necessarily be different from the ones that are offered in Austria. You've just touched up on something that is certainly a hot topic in any country, probably that becomes the unwilling or willing host country for a large group of migrants, and that is the return intention of the refugees. And I'm sure every Austrian, even that one that is relatively positively uh, looking at the Ukrainian migration, has been asking himself or herself, will Ukrainian refugees ever go back? As I see, you're mentioning that many are not planning to immediately go back, but I'm wondering about two things, actually, first of them being the long-term return intentions, whether people want to eventually go back, for example, when the war ends and the situation changes. Also, the kind of conditions, that's my second sub-question, the kind of conditions that have to be in place exactly for people to want to go back. So here in this case, I have to say this is one of the, I wouldn't say blind spots, but not fully surveyed topics in our study. 
We conducted a study at a point in time when for most respondents, they had just arrived a few days or weeks ago and they were very new to Austria. And also the whole situation was very new. So we started the survey in April. Many people who came to the registration center back then had already arrived in early March um, because they got an appointment at a later point. And for them, it was a very unclear and difficult to assess situation, I would say. So back then, quite a lot of people said for the time being we will stay but eventually we want to go back. I would however conjecture that at this point now eight months after the outbreak of the war this might have changed especially because now we are entering or starting a new school year here in Austria which also means that many Ukrainian children will actually increasingly attend the Austrian curriculum and not follow the Ukrainian one. This is I think an important aspect that we hardly ever talk about but of course it will mean that increasingly, and we know how it is with young children, they will soon have their social network in Austria. And so returning to Ukraine would also mean uprooting them once again from their familiar social network and then going back to a country which might increasingly be foreign to them. So these are very, very difficult questions that people face. I can't really answer your question specifically yet, but what I do think will be valuable and I hope we will be able to also do this in the future in the next couple of months is to resurvey our respondents. So we collected contact data and actually want to recontact them to assess where they are standing now. So how they are doing integration-wise, how they are doing also with regards to return intentions, what their immediate plans are, but also what their plans for, let's say, the next two to three years are. Because I think one scenario that for some reasons that I can only assume uh, politicians hardly ever talk about when the war ends is also that Ukrainian women will not go back, but rather Ukrainian men will want to join them in Western European countries, because let's not forget, even before the outbreak of the war, many Western European countries had a sizable Ukrainian diaspora and people working in a variety of labor market sectors that are increasingly facing a labor shortage. So I think this, and then we have a clear mix, and this will depend on the legal framework, a mix of forced but also regular migration. So I think these are very important policy questions on the horizon. At the moment, I'm afraid we don't have good answers to that, but it will be important to closely survey that. And this is also what we hope to contribute from sort of the academic perspective here. Um, we did not go so much into the methodology of your survey up until now, and that was quite intentional. So we're rather interested for this podcast in the broad policy results of your survey. But let me just ask you one question that I think might be interested, interesting, again, for our listeners who are not economists or sociologists and maybe not even researchers in the broader context. And that is, what kind of challenges did you have conducting this survey? How was it for you to conduct the survey? What kind of problems did you meet on the way? So I have to say we already had some experiences with the situation in 2015. Back then, I remember the situation was even more chaotic, I feel, also for us, because this was our first survey in a high stakes emergency context. We're calling it a rapid response survey, also in parallel to the coronavirus social surveys that were conducted back then at the outbreak of the pandemic. So the idea of a rapid response uh, survey is that it, it classically does not have a sample to draw from 
It is done with a lot of also academic compromises that simply have to be done because you are doing it in an emergency situation. And most importantly, I think we should not lose sight of the fact that our respondents in this case are people who by definition are highly vulnerable because they are refugees and displaced people. And so this means that before you can even start sketching the project and start working on the questionnaire and how to do all these different things and how to put the moving parts together, it's important to consider research ethics, which is really key in forced migration research. So what we did before all the other steps is really to have this proposal that we had for doing a study like this. We submitted it to an ethics committee at my university and waited for the approval. And this is really key in this context. And I'm stressing this because I feel that in social surveys or in social sciences in general, this is still not state of the art as such. More and more colleagues are doing that, but I think it really should be the first step really to take. And we also made sure that there was psychological supervision throughout the field stage, both for respondents, but also for the interviewers in the field, who very often also had a Ukrainian background and who might also be triggered by some of the reports and stories that they hear. So that's really key. And then doing the survey in this registration center that was run by the city of Vienna and several humanitarian organizations also required a lot of compromise from our side because the situation was very flexible. Things kept changing throughout the days and weeks. So the, the waiting areas changed. Um, the NGOs that were present changed. At some point, um, the humanitarian organizations didn't have enough interpreters on location, so we had to lend them our interpreters, which you know opens up a range of questions of how do we sort of manage to stay in this academic role? Is this problematic with regards to research ethics? Then again, we can't just simply say no because we depend on the goodwill of these organizations to be allowed to conduct our research there. So really this is, I mean, we're used to this and you have to handle this on a day-to-day -day basis, but it requires a lot of flexibility and also a lot of flexibility when it comes to the data that you get. This is not the kind of perfect survey data that could be collected from, let's say, Statistics Austria or the National Statistics Institute drawing a sample from census data. This is a very different context. There will be several limitations that have to apply to this data, like it's not representative in a strict sense. You also have to analyze it for biases, like educational biases, gender biases, and so on. But still, bottom line is, I think that it's important to collect it because we want to answer a lot of questions and we want to address the key question behind all of that, namely, who are the people who are arriving, right? And the, the problem is that our official institutions mainly look at the numbers, how many people are coming, but not at the much more important question in my view, who is coming, who is staying, who is returning. And these are really key questions to be answered. And I hope that our survey, and our survey is really one among several, can contribute parts of the answer to that question. As the results of your survey are, in my mind at least, very impressive and also very actionable, I am wondering what kind of policy takeaways do you hope to see coming out of your survey? And I'm asking intentionally a rather personal question. So what would you like the survey to have impacted? Yeah, so I think there are 
two main policy takeaways that I would really see from all this data. Um, the one I already briefly mentioned, namely that we really need to adapt the integration policies and the support measures that come from the state, the federal level, the regional level, they really have to be adapted to the sociodemographic profile of the refugee population. And really integration is not one size fits all. So we can't just really re-implement the support measures that we introduced in 2015 that fit a completely different population and now apply them to the Ukrainian population. This would not be a good fit. And this would also mean that there is a lot of lost resources because people will not be able to benefit from these support measures. So this is really one takeaway, I would say. And then secondly, with regards to return intentions, I think it's really key to not repeat this mistake. And you can trace this back to a very long history of Austrian uh, refugee reception in this country that very often we hear these people will not stay. They will go back or they will sort of move on to further countries. We heard that back in 1956 when Hungarian refugees arrived. Similarly, the Austrian population was given the impression that all these Hungarians will just pass through and will migrate to the West. This was true for a certain percentage among them, but not for all of them, right? And many of them stayed. And it's important, I think, to communicate this from the start. And similarly with Ukraine, Yes, there will be people who will go back, but first of all, for the time being, this does not seem feasible for a variety of reasons. And secondly, several among them, I don't know how high the share will be, but I would expect among one third to a half will stay for a considerable period of time, even stay forever, perhaps. And this is, I think, really, really key. And so far, I'm not seeing any durable solutions. I'm seeing temporary solutions, as the Temporary Protection uh, Directive says. But really, to have these sustainable and long-term goals in view, this is missing. And so I think what the results should address is really at all levels, like it's a sort of multi-level approach, right? So the federal level, but also the provinces and regional level. And then most importantly, when it comes to legal residence titles that people need, also the European level, because this again needs to be a European decision, I would say. Judith Kollenberger, it was a pleasure to host you at our Transformative Podcast. Thank you for taking the time and talking to me. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation, Lorena. Thank you. You have been listening to the Transformative Podcast produced by RedZet in Vienna. Wir sind das Volk! Wir sind das Volk!